0: listening to the Pro Bono Happy Hour, I'm Rena Gleaser. Welcome back. Today's guest is once again Don Saltzman from Skadden. We had such a wide-ranging conversation that we've broken it up into two episodes. This week, in part two, we'll jump right into discussing the firm's Pro Bono program, its global impact project, and more. We hope you enjoy our conversation. Don, tell us about how you got to Skadden.
1: I ended up at Skadden after 14 and a half years as a public defender, really because of money. I mean, I, I I thought I was going to be a career public defender. I loved being a public defender. I never burned out. I never got jaded. I I loved what I was doing. Um, it was hard work, but it was really rewarding. Um, but my wife and I started having a family. Uh, she is a public interest lawyer as well. And, you know, the last couple of years after we had our second child, uh, we were living in D.C. and we were basically on deficit spending. We were watching our uh, resources dwindle because uh, what we were bringing in was less than what we were um, paying out. So I was looking for a way that I could continue to be a public interest lawyer, but earn, you know, a, a little bit better salary. And um, I had started this pro bono project working with law firms in D.C., uh, recruiting their lawyers to uh, take on criminal cases through the public defender's office. And I had an idea for a project uh, to kind of take that idea in-house and to find a firm that would be interested in having me supervise and mentor and train lawyers at a law firm to take on criminal cases uh, referred by a public defender's office. And so I kind of at the strong suggestion of a friend, I wrote up a proposal. And before I started pitching it to law firms, I decided to run it by a partner I knew at Skadden, who actually my wife and I had worked on a death penalty project together a number of years before that and had become friends. And I reached out to him just to share the kind of proposal to get his input like you know do you think this is a good idea do you have suggestions for how I should tweak it and he told me he thought that it was a really great idea but he also said to me that he'd been interested in trying to bring in a full-time pro bono counsel to skadden to help oversee the pro bono program that they had here and he asked me whether that was something that I'd be interested in and I said that sounds very interesting to me so it was a broader idea than the one that I had Shared with him not to pitch it to him uh, because Scadden was already participating in the pro bono program through the public defender's office. Um, but it, that led to Scadden uh, asking me if I wanted to join the firm as as the first pro bono full-time pro bono counsel in our D.C. office. We we have uh, another longstanding pro bono counsel, Ron Tabak, in our New York office, who really helped to create and put. In, um, and implement a firm-wide pro bono program. But I was the first person to to focus solely on pro bono in the D.C. office. So uh, they hired me in uh, September. I think I joined in September of 2002, and I've been here for the last 14 and a half years.
0: Thank you for sharing and being so honest and candid. Um, so tell us a little bit more about your role at the firm and how you spend your time. I
1: think I'm actually uh, somewhat... Unique, uh, not completely unique, but somewhat unique as far as pro bono counsel at big firms. Because um, over the years, um, I've found that what what I find uh, most rewarding and the way that I can add a lot of value is to be significantly involved in supervising lawyers on pro bono cases and helping to lead teams of lawyers on pro bono cases. And so um I have a mix of responsibilities, you know, administrative responsibilities at the firm, um but I would say that I spend 75% of my time, maybe a little more, um actively working substantively on uh pro bono cases either through supervision uh or leading, you know, teams of lawyers and sometimes working on cases on my own. Uh so and I think that's unusual. I think it, Many, many pro bono counsel, there, there's a mix that's a much more of a balance uh, between administrative and substantive responsibilities or, or maybe you know some people who spend most of their time administering the pro bono program and it, it, in a very active way, recruiting lawyers to, to take on pro bono projects within the firm, finding really fascinating projects for lawyers to take on. Uh, but I found that um, maybe, you know, my skill set is best utilized in kind of the balance that I've struck here. So um, I spend about, you know, 75% of my time uh, working on actual pro bono uh, projects and they're not all litigation oriented here, but a lot of, a lot of it is, and and a lot of it uh, that I do personally is criminal justice related.
0: So looking back from the time that you joined the firm in 2002, what's been your biggest surprise?
1: You know that's a good question. I would say, um, well, I didn't know. I had been in a in a law firm before I came to Skadden for the first couple years of my career, um, and I didn't really do much pro bono, and um, that firm didn't really have an active pro bono program. So when I came to Skadden, I was surprised at how deep into the core of the firm um, the ethic uh, to do pro bono work and to give back to the community in a lot of different ways um, was. Uh, I had known about the Skadden Fellows Program, which is really separate from our pro bono program, so I knew that the firm had a tremendous history of kind of supporting public interest through the work of the Skadden Fellows Program. But I guess uh, it was more my ignorance, uh, really, about you know the, the firm, uh, but... Uh, it really impressed me how important this pro bono mission is to people, very, very important people at the firm, uh, all the way down to the um, newest members of the firm. Um, And I guess the other thing is uh, I had known a little bit about the network of, uh, uh, you know, or the work that other firms do, you know, pro bono as well, a little bit. But I guess I've been really impressed, too, by how collaborative, the uh, uh, effort is uh, between and among law firms. Um, uh, you think of law firms as very competitive organizations, and they they definitely are, but there's an amazing amount of collaboration uh, between firms um, in this area.
0: Yeah, I agree. Competitors in the marketplace, collaborators in pro bono. Exactly. What do you think's changed the most since 2002 at... Law firms, sort of the legal landscape, or in in pro bono over sort of this stretch of time?
1: Well, one thing I'll mention, and I'm sure there are a lot of changes, um, I have been, I've had the opportunity to work on some projects where we have um, utilized technology to uh, further the work of uh, legal services organizations and uh, the kind of pro bono mission. Um, And so not only taking advantage of the really terrific intellectual technology folks here in our firm, uh, which we have done, but also collaborating with some really great outside organizations who have amazing resources and a real desire to... Um put those resources into uh supporting uh pro bono work that lawyers at our firm and other firms have have been working on so for example we have a we've we've developed a really terrific relationship with navigant um and they uh, in a in an important innocence project case that I had earlier this year um they loaned us a person for um several weeks to be kind of the courtroom technology. Expert, um, uh, a person who could call up an exhibit uh, on a, you know, seconds' notice and put it up on a screen and manipulate it, and um, which is a really effective tool to help lawyers um, who are storytellers uh, do their work in a courtroom. Um, and we've worked with them on other projects as well to try to streamline a clinic. Um, here in D.C. to provide a kind of technological solution to make the work of people in, in a kind of a walk-in clinic in D.C. They're working with us right now. Um, so I think the, the one of the surprises is the way that lawyers and, and folks in the tech world can collaborate to, to make legal services and pro bono work more effective and efficient has um, been a really terrific thing to see.
0: Uh, those are such smart takes, both on the tech side, that one of the advances of technology in the world that we can tap into is to help make access to justice more efficient and more widely spread, and um, experts, right? It, we always think, you know, every lawyers and we can do it all, but there are so many amazing experts like Navigant, like tech experts. And we just have to ask. <laughs> We're not always good about, you know, sort of asking outside our box, but...
1: I think that is so true. I mean, I have been surprised in a great way over and over again when, you know, folks have asked and people have responded. It's really terrific.
0: Let's talk a little bit about Scadden's Impact Project. Could you tell us about how that started and how the model's grown?
1: This has been something that we've been working on for about 4 years here at Skadden and it's um Impetus was really a conversation between one of our most um senior partners here in our DC office actually one of the leaders um of Skadden worldwide he was the head of our um or one of the co-chairs of our um uh tax group worldwide and our regulatory practice um and it was a conversation between uh his partner and his daughter, who was also working in legal services, about this idea of civil Gideon and the idea that um, the right to a lawyer for poor people should extend beyond just uh criminal defense, but to broader civil matters. And how while that may not be on the horizon as a, a right that all poor people would have uh anytime soon that there are ways that law firms could try to fill that gap. Um, and out of that conversation was an idea that, you know, maybe if if we as a firm focused a portion of our resources, pro bono resources here in our own community in D.C., in a few targeted areas, we could make a significant difference in the lives of people here. And while uh, pro bono before... Uh, a few years ago was was very much kind of whatever individual lawyers were interested in working on that's what uh, folks would do we we thought here we could spend some of our resources focused on a on a group effort uh intentionally you know focused in in particular places um to try to make that difference so we we decided that we would figure out where there were great areas of need in DC and it became pretty Clear that there were many, many different areas, so we could just pick a few. It wouldn't matter, um, and we ended up picking housing and and representing people who are facing eviction, um, helping um, victims of domestic violence obtain civil protection orders, and um, serving as guardians ad litem for children who are caught in contested custody battles. Uh, and we we kind of created a three pronged approach. We identified legal services groups in D.C. who were you know, really the flagship organizations um, in those areas, and we asked them if they would partner with us uh, uh, to develop training programs for our lawyers to help us build expertise within the firm in those areas. Uh, we also had a technology part of it, so we created a SharePoint site, a place where for each of these three teams, um, all of the resources that the lawyers would need, training materials, statutes, pleadings, sample pleadings, all the um, documents and resources that they would need, research memos, could be found in one place. Um, And finally, we decided that we would try to partner with local corporations, um, with lawyers um, in-house at local companies to try to um, uh, partner with them on uh pro bono representations in order to inc- expand the the available set of lawyers to work on these cases um and uh we started with that idea and we kind of started to build that within the firm and then um you know with our collaborations and i think it's been um a real success um and probably the most important uh, successes have been in building expertise within our firm uh, in how to handle those kinds of cases. And we've handled, uh, I've lost track now, but well over 150 cases over the last uh, three and a half years or so um, in those areas. So I think we have made a significant difference in in the lives of um, children and families. That was kind of the focus of the three areas, children and families.
0: So since IMPACT is part of the name, is there anything that you do to measure or track impact? Well, it's hard
1: because you can keep track of the number of cases that you've worked on and you can keep track of the outcomes in those cases at least at that moment in time. Um, but it's challenging. So I mentioned my wife earlier. She has been in the public interest field for a long time and for um, many years was the head of the local bar foundation that was the sort of uh, provider of funding to legal services, uh, both private and public. And one of the things that she worked on was to try to figure out how to measure the broader impact of um, the legal representations uh, of poor people. And it's, it's really challenging because on the one hand, there are probably many, many collateral benefits to helping someone, for example, retain their home um they're able to keep their job their kids are able to have stability and not have to transfer you know from school to school to school on the other hand it's hard to know you know you, ha- you help a client um uh in march you know avoid eviction but it's hard to know unless you have a very robust follow up process to know what happened to them in may or june or july so it's i don't know if that's an answer to your question um, oh, I think it would be, uh, yes. it would be I... wonderful to be able to measure the impact. Um, but I guess what I can say is that I think you know that you've made a significant impact at that moment in time, and there are a lot of ripples that um, spread out, and hopefully they're they positive ripples rather than negative ripples. Um, and you know, so at least I like to think that we're we're helping in many ways that we don't even know.
0: I agree. And I'm scratching my head because you validate our experience where this whole concept of measuring impact is just very hard in the access to justice arena. It's not just outcomes and it's really hard to do longitudinal, you know, sort of benefit tracking. And um, it's very complicated. So you validate that.
1: (laughs) I'll say one other thing. I, I do think that simply doing this work connects Lawyers to their community, and I think that that's a huge benefit. Um, you know, we are very, very privileged to be at, working at a law firm like Skadden and all the other major law firms. And um, and uh, sometimes I think it would be easy to forget that we're in a community where there are a lot of challenges. Because um, some of us get to go home to a community that's really different, even though it's not very far away. So I, I think there's a huge benefit to to having a coordinated effort to uh connect lawyers to their community in in that way.
0: That's a wonderful point. And I think it's particularly acute here in Washington where so many lawyers have national or international practices. Their their client base isn't necessarily in the community. So <laughs> you know, in addition to where they live and their experience in their day to day uh Practice it's it's can be very uh, remote, you know, or, or divorced from what's happening just down the street or a couple metro stops away. Um, I did want to shout out to that unnamed tax partner, um, Fred Goldberg, who also serves on our law firm pro bono project advisory committee. So shout out to him. Yes, Fred
1: <laughs> is an amazing uh, person. Um, he has devoted his career, a really significant part of his career, to pro bono work and, and specifically in thinking about and implementing ways to build assets among poor people to help change the outcomes of their lives um, simply through developing uh, platforms and other really sophisticated efforts to uh, help build assets um Uh, among single mothers and children. And it's really been amazing for me to watch over the last uh, 14 years. So, He's another hero of mine.
0: That's great. So I should say the impact project has grown larger, that it's been so successful that the firm has replicated it in other locations. And that's really a sign of sort of the four-year learn. Um, and I'm sure the project will continue to grow and evolve. What else is on the horizon for you and the pro bono program either a, a project, an, air, an access to justice area you, you think you're going to get involved in, or a long-term or short-term goal that you have? So uh,
1: here, we, here we are, it's December, and uh, it's a time when I'm supposed to be, I guess people are supposed to be thinking about, like, you know, what comes next? It's New Year, New Year's resolution. I have to say that uh, I, I've i been so busy lately that I haven't really had a chance to focus beyond Clemency Project and the Norfolk Four And the case that I learned about a couple days ago that the Supreme Court granted cert in that I've had a a role in, although I'm not one of the the lead folks uh, on the Supreme Court effort. But so I have to say in that regard, you've caught me kind of flat footed because I I don't have a vision for what comes next. Um,
0: That's cool. We'll we'll stay tuned and you'll come back and we'll hear about it. Um, But in the meantime, tell us about the cert grant. What kind of case is that?
1: Yeah, so that's another wrongful conviction innocence case. Um one of the highest profile murder cases in DC uh in the last 30 years. Uh it actually happened when I was in law school in 1984 and a 48-year-old woman um on a Monday afternoon was walking uh in Northeast DC uh and um w- was found late in the afternoon, um, murdered and uh, beaten to death and horribly sodomized in a garage off of an alley. And this was five years before the Central Park jogger case, which was the case where the prosecution police theory was that a, a kind of a roving gang of young men had attacked a jogger in, in Central Park and raped her and beat beat her. Um, so five years before that, this A and H. case Um, was a case where the police pretty quickly believed that a large group of teenagers who were hanging out in a park had attacked this woman uh, initially to rob her, but ultimately beat her and sodomized her with an object um, and left her to die in this garage. And um, ultimately, I think 17 young people were arrested and charged with that crime. Ten of them went went to trial and eight were convicted. Um and of those eight uh one died in prison, and seven um spent very, very long times in prison and one of them has been paroled um but a number of years ago, uh really through the efforts of a journalist a washington post reporter um, investigations began, and a lot of evidence um was developed to uh that really um undercut the the theory that this was a gang of kids who committed the crime, and through efforts of the Innocence Project here, Mid-Atlantic Innocence Project, um, and another Innocence Project, um, and a lot of lawyers, um, we ended up filing sort of claims of innocence as well as post-conviction challenges under a D.C. statute, um, and had a lengthy hearing in 2012, um, but unfortunately, the judge ruled against us. Um, The main part of our claim was uh, that the government had failed to disclose exculpatory evidence about alternate perpetrators, Um, and we believe that evidence is incredibly powerful. We think it really demonstrates who committed the crime. Um, But the Superior Court disagreed with us. The Court of Appeals disagreed with us and affirmed the convictions. And uh, a couple days ago, the Supreme Court granted cert, and uh, the question is whether um, the court erred in denying these Brady claims. Um, and so uh, a team of lawyers is now working on that Supreme Court case. And this spring sometime, um, it'll be argued before the court.
0: And if people are interested in learning more, The Washington Post has really a lot of coverage about about this case, in particular because it was a local uh, matter. It
1: was a huge thing. As I said, I was in law school at the time, and uh, I remember this case vividly. I actually had lived for a summer um, within a couple blocks of where the crime happened, so uh, it's been a, a case that's been in the media for many years in, in D.C. Anyway, um, and it's really a tragic, tragic story of you know what happened to this woman, but also what's happened to the families and the men um, who remain in prison and and the families.
0: We'll stay tuned and, and keep an eye out, see how it goes. We wish you luck. So. In addition, other than Fred Goldberg, who you mentioned, and George Kendall, who you've mentioned, who are some of your other pro bono or access to justice role models?
1: I mentioned Ron Tayback. Ron has been at Skadden for probably 35 years, and is one of the most passionate, committed people that I've ever met. And the thing that is amazing about Ron is that he really built a lot of the structures that we use here at Skadden to to um m- monitor what um pro bono work is being done to 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 measure it um and to expand the scope of pro bono um and to really help along with some very supportive executive partners of the firm and other partners um to build a- policies and procedures to make it easy for lawyers to do pro bono so i would have to say that um You know, Ron deserves enormous credit for where Skadden has come um, as a as a firm that has, you know, started with a strong public interest uh, and public uh, service commitment, but. Has really built a, an infrastructure and a culture. So,
0: yeah, and beyond. I mean, I think he's trained legions of pro bono professionals. <laughs> you know, he, everyone who has called him to ask advice or questions through the decades, uh, he's been a, a mentor and a resource to to so many. And uh, mm-hmm. so, that's one a, other
1: person that I would mention. You know, when I was in the public defender's office and was thinking about trying to move into the law firm community to do pro bono work. Susie Hoffman at Kroll & Mooring was uh, someone that my wife knew and uh, was the first person that I reached out to. And she is um, really, I I think, might have been the first full-time pro bono uh, lawyer in D.C. at a firm, at least the first that I know of. Um, She's now the pro bono partner at Kroll. And she has done so many amazing things. So, she is another role model and, and just a tremendous resource, um, so if folks don't know Susie Hoffman, they should get to know her because uh, she's really terrific.
0: Uh, two great choices, Ron and Susie, thank you for sharing so Don let's end with this. If you had a magic wand, what one thing would you change about pro bono or access to justice?
1: So I have to say, even though I'm a pro bono lawyer at a firm, I, I really think that the access to justice problem is is not going to be solved at uh the f- law firm level i really do believe that it requires um uh significantly greater funding of legal services and i'm one of the people who thinks that that is a tremendous investment rather than a uh, fiscal cost because in so many ways if you can give people poor people a chance to have a lawyer Um, you can really improve their lives in a way that they can be much more productive members of society. So, you know, we hear about families where uh, parents, you know, have to take off work because their children have asthma and they have to constantly be going to the emergency room and the parents' jobs are jeopardized. They can't be productive people because their children's health, you know, intrudes. And the reason... Oftentimes is because they're living in substandard housing uh and they uh you know they just they can 't get better even with the best medical care so um and i while pro bono lawyers can can help, I really think that having robust legal services is critical and and maybe the last thing i 'll say is that i've mentioned a lot of people, but the people that I admire day in and day out are the legal services lawyers who choose to work in organizations for really modest pay um, with high caseloads and just tremendous stress and other you know, um, challenges, and yet choose to do that day in and day out. And so I really think that if we're going to solve the uh, access to justice problem and close that gap, um, law firms can help, but the, the real need is to increase funding public and private for uh, legal services.
0: Don, thank you so much for talking with me. It's been a pleasure.
1: You are so welcome. Thank you for asking me.
0: Thanks for listening. And a special thank you to Don for joining us on our show. New and archived episodes of the podcast can be found on iTunes and YouTube. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't already and please take a moment to leave a review. We'd appreciate the honest feedback and it would help make it easier for other listeners to find the program and expand the conversation about pro bono and access to justice. We'd love to hear from you. Send your comments and suggestions to bono at probonoinst.org. Be warned, we might just read them on the air. As always, to learn more about the Pro Bono Institute and our work, please visit our website at probonoinst.org. The next program in the Esther Lardent Leadership and Pro Bono series, A Conversation with Tim Mayapolis, the President and CEO of Fannie Mae, is scheduled for January 25th in Washington, DC. And registration is now open for our annual conference, which will be in March. If you're interested, act now to take advantage of discounted registration rates. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Pro Bono Happy Hour.